Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, the show's currently on break until the new year, but we've got plenty of classic episodes to tide you over. Enjoy this trip through the show's own history, and I'll see you back here on January 2nd with a batch of brand new episodes. See you then. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's December 31st. Theodosia Burr Alston disappeared on this day in 1812. Of course, she was the daughter of Aaron Burr and Theodosia Bartow. When they met, the elder Theodosia was already married. Theodosia and Aaron Burr got married in 1782 after the death of her first husband. And they had a daughter, the subject of this episode, on June 21st, 1783. The young Theodosia had very ambitious parents. Her parents focused their ambitions on her. This is especially true of her father. He wanted to groom her to be an outstanding lady. Consequently, she was very highly educated, possibly the most educated woman of her time, and she was widely regarded as a child prodigy. When she was only 10, though, the young Theodosia's mother died. It was probably of stomach cancer. And in spite of her very young age, Theodosia started taking on more and more of the work that had been her mother's. She was managing their household and the enslaved staff. She was acting as hostess for her father's gatherings. She really was the mistress of their house by her early teens. In 1800, two things happened that would really change her life. One was that there was an incredibly convoluted presidential election, and Theodosia's father, Aaron Burr, ultimately became the vice president. The other big change was that she met a man named Joseph Alston of South Carolina. He was a wealthy, educated planter, and he had practiced law before turning his attentions to agriculture. He had a rice plantation that had more than 6,000 acres and a staff of more than 200 enslaved Africans. 
He had to work really hard to convince her to marry him, though. She was attracted to him, but she thought they were way too young to get married. Once they did get married, though, they went on a lengthy bridal tour, and then they had a son around May 22nd of 1802. During the delivery, Theodosia experienced a very severe uterine prolapse, and that negatively affected her health for the rest of her life. She was exhausted and traumatized after giving birth to her son, and in a lot of ways, she felt incredibly isolated in South Carolina. Being on a plantation with such a huge enslaved staff was a very different experience for her than what she had been used to in her father's houses. So just three weeks after giving birth, even though she was definitely still recovering, she went to visit her father, and these visits back home became an annual tradition. Then on July 11th, 1804, when Theodosia was 21, her father shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. He was arrested for treason, tried and acquitted, but he fled to Europe to try to escape the scandal. Theodosia had kept trying to get permission for her father to come back to the United States, but that didn't happen until 1812. And then unfortunately, they did not have a happy reunion Her son, who was also named Aaron, died just a couple of months after Aaron Burr got back to the United States. She was absolutely traumatized and devastated, and her only consolation was getting home to her father. But the War of 1812 was going on. Theodosia's husband had been elected governor of South Carolina and was brigadier general of the state militia, so there was no way that he could leave his duties and accompany her on a trip to go see her father, An overland voyage would have been probably safer in some ways, but very long and uncomfortable, especially for somebody with her medical history. The only way that was reasonable for her to get to her father was by sea. That was a trip that would take less than a week, but it was an already uncertain means of travel through an active war zone that was also full of pirates. In spite of all that, she was set on going. Her husband didn't have the heart to try to keep her at home, and she departed from Georgetown, South Carolina, aboard a small pilot boat called the Patriot on December 31st, 1812. She also had a lot of her father's papers with her to return to him, and Dr. Timothy Ruggles Green on board with her to take care of her because of her illness. She probably had a maid and maybe a cook with her as well. Her husband boarded the ship with her and then rowed back to shore after kissing her goodbye, and then once the Patriot slipped out of view from the shore, it was never seen again. Her father and her husband held out hope for weeks that maybe she had just been delayed somehow, but they were never reunited. They eventually accepted that she had died. There are, though, theories that continue to persist about what really happened. You can learn more about this, including more about those theories, in the October 18th, 2017 episode of Stuff You Miss in History Class. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to the Stay in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for the birth of one of history's most famous patrons. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro series has all of those and the Roku streaming experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. Hey, y'all. I'm closing out the decade from the comfort of my own home. But I'm so glad that you made it to the end of the year with me. And still, the show must go on. So let's get into the last episode of the year. The day was December 31st, 1953. Hewlin Jack was sworn in as borough president of Manhattan, making him the highest ranking black elected municipal official in the U.S. at the time. Jack was born in St. Lucia. Jack's father was a minister and was active in Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. Jack's family spent time on various Caribbean islands, but when he was a teenager, he accompanied his father on a trip to New York City and stayed there even after his father returned to the Caribbean. Jack's plan was to get an American education, to find work, and to become involved in politics, and he immediately set about reaching all of those goals. Jack enrolled in the New York Evening High School and got his diploma in 1929. He later took evening classes at New York University, where he completed three years of study toward a bachelor's degree in business administration. Jack found work at a paper box factory, and he managed to work his way from being a box cutter there to being the vice president of sales. But as he witnessed more racism and discrimination, Jack turned toward a political career. In 1930, Jack joined the Democratic Party. The next year, he became a U.S. citizen. In 1934, he married Gertrude Hewitt, with whom he had one child. She died in 1937, and four years later, he married Almira Wilkinson. They also had one child together. Jack entered politics as millions of Black people left the Republican Party to vote for Democrat Franklin D. Roosevelt as president. He did face racism as he became more involved in the Democratic Party, but in 1940, he was elected to represent Harlem in the New York State Assembly. He served as an assemblyman from 1941 to 1953, after being re-elected several times. He became known as a Tammany Hall operative. Tammany Hall was the Democratic Party political machine that had a lot of control in New York City and state politics from the late 18th century to the 1960s. The organization was known for its support of impoverished people and immigrants, as well as its corruption. But Jack was also known for his advocacy for bills that struck down segregation and discrimination. In 1953, as the Republicans moved toward choosing a Black candidate for president of the borough of Manhattan, the Democratic Party decided to run Jack for office. He won the election, becoming the first Black person to hold the office. 
Jack was the first Black American to hold a major city elective post since Reconstruction. It was a major win, as the office came with a decent salary of $25,000 and a lot of recognition and power. During his time in office, many improvements were made to the infrastructure in Manhattan, and more public housing was made available. Even though some of the projects he supported proved controversial, he was re-elected to a second term in 1957. But during this term, he ran into a political scandal that had an impact on his position. Jack was convicted of accepting an illegal gift of $4,500 after a contractor refused to accept payment for renovations on his apartment. At this point, Tammany Hall's power was waning, and some people were accusing Jack of being an Uncle Tom for working within the system. He resigned as borough president in 1960, but he continued in politics and made good with constituents. Despite becoming involved in another scandal, Jack argued that so much heat was on him because of his race. He was re-elected to the New York State Assembly in 1968, and he continued serving as district leader of the Democratic Party, a position he held from 1946 to 1972. But Jack would become embroiled in political scandal yet again in 1972, when he was wrapped up in conflict of interest charges related to a community service firm that he was a partner in. He was convicted and sentenced to three months in federal prison, which he served in 1973. Jack went on to advise other politicians, endorse the controversial Lyndon H. LaRouche Jr. for the presidential nomination in 1980, and become the founder and executive board member of the Schiller Institute, a political and economic think tank. Jack died in New York City in 1986. His involvement in political scandals, the decline of the Tammany Hall political machine, changes to how political power was organized, and a shifting landscape of race and politics all complicated his legacy. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you want to send us a note on social media, you can do that at T-D-I-H-C podcast on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can shoot us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks, as always, for listening to the show, and we'll see you again tomorrow. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have hardwired inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcasts. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality, high quality and immersive sound, a sleek design. All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro series has all of those and the Roku streaming experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day. And regular, all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X. 
and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show for those interested in the big and bizarre moments of history. I'm Gabe Luzier, and in this episode, we're talking about the dinner party to end all dinner parties, the only one on record to be held inside of a 30-ton dinosaur. The day was December 31st, 1853. Natural history artist and sculptor Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins hosted a New Year's Eve dinner party inside a full-scale model of an iguanodon. The event was attended by 21 high-profile guests, including leading scientists, businessmen, and journalists. It was held as a publicity stunt to advertise Hawkins' latest upcoming project, a display of the world's first dinosaur sculptures at the Crystal Palace Park in London. The Iguanodon was chosen as the site of the meal because it was the largest of the 33 concrete dinosaur models that had been commissioned one year earlier. Like the animal it was based on, the sculpture measured approximately 2.7 meters, or 9 feet high, and 10 meters, or 33 feet long. The dinner's guest of honor was Professor Richard Owen, a trained doctor and celebrated paleontologist who spent much of his life studying fossilized remains. In fact, Owen was the one who first coined the term dinosaur, which means terrible lizard, and he did so just 11 years before Hawkins' party. He's also the researcher who advised Hawkins on the design of his dinosaur models, including the iguanodon. Owen provided estimates on the general size and shape of the animals and then supervised the sculpting process to make sure Hawkins captured the key details of each species. That said, it's worth noting that the models represented the knowledge of the time and are no longer considered scientifically accurate. As for why the dinosaur sculptures were made at all, they were commissioned by the Crystal Palace Company as a way to celebrate the venue's reopening. The Crystal Palace was a huge glass, steel, and iron structure that had been built to house the exhibits of the First World's Fair, also known as the Great Exhibition of 1851. When that exhibition ended, the Crystal Palace was meticulously disassembled and moved to a new permanent location nine miles away. Hawkins' dinosaur models were meant to be one of the new premier attractions when the palace reopened in June of 1854. At the time, the public had only seen illustrations of dinosaurs, or maybe an incomplete skeleton. It was hard to get a sense of the animal's true scale, and as a result, dinosaurs weren't a subject of public fascination like they are today. However, the Crystal Palace Company saw the potential. It wagered that life-size replicas would be enough to capture the public's interest and draw a big crowd for the palace's opening day. Hawkins' New Year's Eve dinner was a way to build excitement for the upcoming exhibit and to whet the public's appetite for big concrete dinosaurs. There are some details we know for certain about the famous dinner, 
including the guest list and the menu, which consisted of eight courses, including mock turtle soup, mutton cutlets, and partridge stew. But there are also some things we don't know about the evening. For example, it's unclear whether the guests sat inside the actual concrete model or inside the mold that the concrete was later poured into. Either way, many of the guests were seated inside the iguanodon's open back cavity. We don't know the exact arrangement of the tables and chairs, but a drawing published in the Illustrated London News a week later does provide some clues. The most likely scenario is that 11 guests were seated in a row inside the belly, and the rest were seated at a perpendicular table just behind the iguanodon, creating a T-shaped table setting. The drawing also shows the model surrounded by a high elevated stage, which enabled the guests and the waitstaff to climb inside the chamber more easily. To recognize his role as the brains behind the project, Richard Owen was seated at the head of the table, which happened to coincide with the head of the iguanodon. Hawkins, as host, was seated in the center. He reportedly gave a short speech at dinner, and Owen followed it with a brief presentation about the sculptures. According to a later report written by Hawkins, the dinner got pretty rowdy as the night went on, or, as he put it, quote, the roaring chorus was so fierce and enthusiastic as almost to lead to the belief that a herd of iguanodons were bellowing. As you might expect, the boisterous guests stayed well past midnight, meaning they were lucky enough to ring in the new year from inside a massive hollowed-out dinosaur. Talk about life goals. It should go without saying, but the dinner was a huge success. The press got into the holiday spirit and gave the event some lighthearted coverage. For instance, the popular humor magazine Punch joked that the dinner showed just how far humans had come as a species. It said, quote, We congratulate the company on the era in which they live, for if it had been an early geological period, they might perhaps have occupied the iguanodons inside without having any dinner there. The press reports stoked excitement for the exhibit's debut, as had been the plan, and when the big day finally came, the public didn't disappoint, and neither did the dinosaurs. The lifelike recreations helped make dinosaurs a subject of mainstream interest for the first time. Visitors took home dinosaur posters and figurines, and for the next half century, more than a million people came to see the models every year. Sadly, the original Crystal Palace burned to the ground in 1936, but the good news is that Hawkins' concrete statues were durable enough to survive the fire. Most of the replicas still stand in the Crystal Palace Park to this day, and thanks to recent refurbishments, they now look better than ever. They're still not the most accurate depictions of prehistoric life, but without them, the public may have never fallen in love with dinosaurs. And really, who would want to live in a world like that? I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can write to us 
at thisday at iheartmedia.com. I'd love to know which species of dinosaur you'd most like to dine inside of for a dinner party. My pick would probably be a Stegosaurus, so that we wouldn't have to worry about running out of plates. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another new year in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro Series has all of those and the Roku Streaming Experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular, all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro Series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? This is Sean, Lights Out Merriman, and Saturday, June 15th, Lights Out Extreme Fighting 17 returns to Casino Palma in San Diego. Get your tickets now at LightsOutXF.com, and we'll be live on Lights Out Sports TV, available on all major platforms. Doors open at 5 p.m. Pacific. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to be Lights Out. Lights Out Sports is free sports TV by athletes for fans. For details about the event and tickets, go to LightsOutXF.com.